0: On episode 210 of the Happy Market Research podcast, I have the pleasure of chatting with Kylan London, head of marketing for Qualtrics. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by G3 Translate. The G3 Translate team offers unparalleled expertise in foreign language translations for market researchers and insight professionals across the globe. Not only do they speak hundreds of languages, they are fluent in market research. For more information, please visit them at g3translate.com. That's the letter G, the number three, translate.com. Hi, I'm Jamie Brazil, and you're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Kylan London, CMO at Qualtrics. Qualtrics was founded in 2002 and is a subscription software for collecting and analyzing consumer data. On November 11th, 2018, it was announced that Qualtrics would be acquired by SAP The acquisition is expected to close in the first half of 2019. Prior to joining Qualtrics in 2013, Kylan worked in turnaround and restructuring services at DVC while getting his MBA at Stanford University. Kylan, thanks very much for joining me on the Happy Market Research podcast. I've been watching you guys, you know, very closely, of course, given my background at Decipher. I remember actually in 2002 when I saw you guys pop, I was in a meeting at Intuit Intuit brought up that they had heard about you guys and you had reached out. And I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. So I started doing some digging, you know, based out of Utah, kind of an, an unusual location for um, a technology company in those days. And then, you know, subsequently, as the company just ramped, it felt like every single year it was almost like a new phoenix. Hmm.
1: Yeah, it was interesting because, you know, it's funny as, as people look back now, it seems really intuitive, right? Like you look at the path. And it seems, it's, <laughs> they're like, oh, of course. Because, you know, when I joined the company um, out of, uh, uh, at a business school, it was still very much an academic research tool. And, and I say tool very, you know, sort of specifically. And then, you know, very soon thereafter, we kind of pivoted into a, an academic research platform. Then we went into a corporate research platform. Then we went into sort of like a general speak, generally speaking, like insight platform, uh, because it was sort of beyond just kind of the market research that people were doing. And then we moved into experience management. And again, looking back, it's like, oh yeah, all those steps seem really logical, but they were terrifying at the time, right? Like each one of those felt like we were really taking a risk where we had this core audience that was really important to us and and that we wanted to continue to sort of prioritize and put it at the center of everything. But we needed to expand sort of the messaging and our product offering to include different people, which means you know the messaging gets a little bit diluted to that specific core audience at first. So, you know, every time it felt really risky. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, like when I first met Ryan, he and I had a chance encounter in Palo Alto. He was out there closing the first round of, of financing from Sequoia and Excel. And we had breakfast together. And there were two things- And what year is that? This is uh, that, was- it was 2012. Uh, yeah. So in 2012, I had breakfast with Ryan Smith. Uh, again, he was closing that round, you know, the, the first round of financing. And there were two things in this meeting that appeared to be true instantly that have proven to be true over time. So the first one was that Ryan, as a CEO, appeared to me to be a bet the business kind of person. Meaning, he did not come across as the kind of person that was going to say, um, hey, I know, Wall Street thinks we're going to go grow at 9% this year. Let's go blow everyone's mind and let's do 11%. Or like, that just was not ever his DNA. He was like, look, I want to go completely invent and take a category all the way to the top or I'm just not that interested in doing this, right? Like, so let's go beat, you know, the, the largest enterprise software players in the world or else like, what are we doing? And he just had that sort of energy of like, look, we're going to the moon. And uh, you know, if you want to sign up, let's do this. And so now that's, that's interesting because back to that original point, that's what happened, right? Like he's bet the business over and over again, right? Between going from an academic research tool to an enterprise research tool to an inside platform to now experience management each of those have been a bet the business decision and, and have, have led to you know phenomenal results for us in the company so just you know could be more excited to be part of that yeah so, so the we, other piece I'm sorry go ahead yeah yeah so he was he's appeared to be a bet the business kind of person and he also appeared to be a bet on people kind of person meaning that i got the sense from him in our you know first breakfast ever meeting that he assumed people could do it before he assumed that they couldn't do it. And so, you know, you can imagine those two things to, together were incredibly powerful. Someone emerging from business school. And now granted, I'd been in the private equity space for five years. But the idea of moving, going to a technology company that was going to shoot for the moon and that would always assume someone could before they couldn't. And what that led to was, A, if you're in a hyper technology company, you get, there's unfair opportunities in front of you all over the place because they're just desperate for good talent to lead new functions and areas and, 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 and tactics. But then on top of that, you have a CEO who, from a very top-down approach, has built a culture where like, they're going to ask you to do something and it's yours to lose. Like, you don't have, it's not like, hey, well, let's go. You know, normally, in our, most businesses, um, a role opens. right? Someone leaves the company or someone's promoted and there's a vacancy. And there's a process where 35 qualified people all apply for that role and, and may the best person, you know, win. Um, this is, you know, in Qualtrics and in a Hypergrowth Tech but it's exactly opposite. There's 35 jobs that need to get done and they're struggling to get talent in the building fast enough. And so they ask you to do all of them. And so and as long as you don't drop the ball on any of them, like, hey, congratulations, that's your new responsibility.
0: Which is interesting, especially as I was uh, doing research on you in preparation for this interview, you know, coming out, as you said, of the private equity world, which is a different lens than I put venture capital, especially in context of what, you, you know, the, the investors that you guys have. Um, and then, you know, moving into special operations and very quickly, I think inside of, just outside of a year, moving into uh, overseeing marketing, right? I mean, it's a it's a tremendous amount of responsibility that was thrown i don't mean thrown on your shoulders like in a bad way but the you know opportunity that you were given that you could then subsequently grow into is that a, has that been a big part of the um of the growth strategy or success is just giving people the opportunity and autonomy to succeed
1: well there are a few things that led to that it's certainly been a circuitous path to the CMO here at Qualtrics again so private equity and 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 really in a lot of ways i love the underlying sort of fundamentals that private equity brought to the table at Qualtrics for me, right? So um, everything has to rely on data, um, living in spreadsheets, understanding exactly what the ROI of every decision is, right? So that was sort of the underpinnings of this. And so that's why as I joined Qualtrics, I actually joined the special operations team and was working on something called RevForce, which was essentially metricing the business for the first time. How do you know how many leads you need and how many salespeople you need and what kind of a pipeline they require to be able to hit our sales goals for next year? The the company was early enough that like no one had done that before. And so I spent the first year putting all the metrics in place to really understand how the business worked. That way, if there was ever a moment when growth stalled just a little bit, or we sensed it was going to stall, we knew all the levers to pull to just accelerate right through it. Even if it cost money to do it, like we knew them, most companies often during the growth phase, they're not disciplined enough to do that. And by the time they start to slow down, it's too late to go figure out what those levers are. And they hit that plateau and, you know, that, you know the end is the end is near, maybe, and so for us, it was really important for the founders to understand those growth levers early during the growth phase, so that if we ever even smelt you know a pause or a slowdown, we could just accelerate right through it. So I spent the first year doing that now, what was great about that is I got to sort of put my hands in all parts of the business right because I got to explore marketing for the first time as I really thought about, well, okay, well, what campaigns are running, and how are they performing, and what kind of budget should you require next year to be able to lead to the you know, feeding the sales floor as many leads as required next year for them to hit their goals. And okay, let's go dive into sales. And how often are you converting opportunities? And like, we just went through everything. And what happened is on the side, Ryan started to loop me in on some of his sort of marketing activities. So as the CEO, he's out raising money, he's closing deals, he's doing a lot of sort of selling. And, you know, one time he said, Hey, I want to go raise another round of of financing. Would you help me put together a story of, you know, what is our story? Right? We just sort of gone to the insight platform at that time let's put it together. So spend some time with Ryan, you know, creating a deck. I'm handy in Illustrator and Photoshop. It's kind of been a hobby as you know, throughout my you know, childhood. And so just enough to be dangerous. But I could put together a PowerPoint presentation, the you know, beautiful keynote, and then really put a story around it that was interesting. And together, like I just, I felt this like electric sort of vibe that I hadn't experienced in business before. And what I found is that anytime I got to sort of live in the metrics but then layer on creativity, I got this extra dopamine hit that I had never had before in business and it was like after that I was I was hooked. And so um, on the side, I started doing these marketing projects for Ryan. so he was like, hey, I want to go spend you know a significant amount of money at Dreamforce. Let's go make a presence there for the first time. But you know what I don't want our classic marketing playbook. I kind of want you to go do it. And so I kind of peeled off, pulled together kind of a, a special team and we went and did Dreamforce and did something truly incredible at Dreamforce where we basically hijacked the entire trade show for two days. It was amazing, right on a shoestring budget, and so all these projects that I was doing on the side with Ryan that had a, a creative flair—again, they just—they were the ones that I was most excited about. I, I would wake up early, I would stay late, like it just, I just—I everything I was throwing everything I had into them, and of course, the result was they ended up going really well because I was personally invested them. I I got that satisfaction that was outside of just sort of like business results, which was great.
0: So one of the things that's really interesting about Qualtrics from my vantage point as as an entrepreneur is you guys have very profoundly successfully created a company that just frankly didn't exist. It's like there there isn't a competitive set that i've been able to identify or com, you know comparables are a little bit different right it's not it's not well, anyway it's not anybody right it's a it's a different you guys are fulfilling this really different unique role and and yet you've been massively successful at monetizing that you know when you when you did your file the s1 it's all anybody could talk about that point in terms of the top line and, and you know the attention to the bottom line as well when the market you know, sees, oh, Qualtrics is going to be there now. I'm thinking about TMRE, I think that was in November of 2018, that conference, you guys were the anchor point for the conference. I mean, in every way, shape and form. And that is a hallmark that has existed anytime you guys are present at a location, at an event. There is so much hesitancy for other companies to step out and be the bell of the ball, I think. How much fear, if at all, did you guys have in, oh, gosh, is it going to be too much? And I'll, I'll just give you an example of like, you know, Ryan giving a wedding ring to, you know, the, the couple that was going to get engaged, sort of that Oprah-esque element of it, right? There's a there's part of me when I first heard that is I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's a that's a scary move. Is that going to be viewed as imposter? And then you guys leaned in and just dominated that narrative so much and made it your own. Is, has conquering fear been part of what you've dealt with as a CMO?
1: I mean, absolutely. As you think about it, anytime you do anything interesting, there are going to be people on both sides that either love it or hate it. And it's actually felt like, especially things that, again, uh, stuff that is actually interesting. Like pe- you can do all kinds of stuff and no one cares. But when you do stuff that actually moves the needle, that gathers the mind space of your you know, pr- prospects and customers, it ends up being a little bit divisive. And so for the most part, we had to be committed. And I think, you know, one of the good things about Qualtrics is we've got a CEO who is a dreamer. He's like a true dreamer. And then you've got a a CMO who has brain trust with them and that could go and execute on some of these dreams. But it's incredibly empowering when you know that, so for example, most of our conversations are like this. Hey, Ryan, I've got this crazy idea. (laughs) What if we, you know, blank, whatever. And it's just, and Ryan's answer is, I've never heard of anybody doing that. There's no way that would work. People are going to hate it. I think we should try it. I think we should try it. I like it. I mean, that's, that's how most of our conversations go. And so, you know, yes, there's a lot of risk. But And I wish I could just say, like, well, I've got this great risk profile and whatever. But the reality is I'm enabled by a CEO who wants to go and change the world. And you don't change the world by doing what's been done already. Like you go and do things that are disruptive and disruption like usually makes people uncomfortable. The wedding ring example, it's a, it's a great one, right? So not only did the first time we did this, right? I, I was, I, get, I told the story at MRE. I didn't give all the facts. I sort of presented it like that was the first time we'd done Dream Team, where we sort of fulfill these dreams of the audience that attend our events. And I shared the story about how someone, you know, was, was hesitant to um, invite their partner to marry them. And they said, "Hey, if you could give me any encouragement, well, you know, while I'm here this weekend; it'd be great." And Ryan's like, "I'll do one better. Here's a diamond wedding ring. If you propose before the weekend's over, it's yours." Right? And so like, you know, like, "Oh my gosh!" Now that was really actually about two years in. So we'd been doing this on a smaller scale before that, where you know, most things were like, "Hey, it'd be great if those, you know, hot coffee," or um, "Hey, I, I spilled some mustard on my shirt. Is there any way I can get a, you know, find a local dry cleaner and we'd help, you know, run him a new shirt." So it had all been we just. We wanted to do something that explained very dramatically to our customers who we are and what we did. And so, you know, in this case, it wasn't as risky risky as maybe people think it is. It was really in line with our brand value, right? So we wanted, you know, we were starting the experience management industry. We are the experience management company. And so we want to make sure that anybody attends our events recognizes that they will have an experience unlike anything else they've ever had because one simple fact, we ask our customers what they're feeling and thinking, and we take action on that. Now, you might say, well, that's a dramatic action to take of buying wedding rings. That's not profitable in the long term for most businesses. Correct. But it highlights sort of at the core who we are as a company and what we enable other organizations to do, which is to listen to customers, employees, prospects, all stakeholders. And then take action in a meaningful way to drive sort of loyalty and sort of excitement for the brand that doesn't exist for most companies.
0: When you think about your focus as an executive team, most companies I think are centered around. I don't know really what the ratios are, but I'll just pretend like I do, like I do with everything else, right? So we'll say it's 80% focused on external customers and 20% internal HR. It feels like the needle is different at Qualtrics, it feels like there's been more of a I don't know what it is, 50 50, or even if it is zero sum, maybe it's 100% in both ca- camps, right? How much of your energy is spent on and focus spent on internal culture versus external sales?
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I wish I could you know, give you a percentage breakdown. It's not off the cuff, it's not entirely clear to me, but I'll give you a couple anecdotes of things and how we kind of think about it. I'll just give you a couple of sort of artifacts of Qualtrics culture that have perpetuated throughout our 16, 18 year history. Every Friday, for the first ten years, when there was you know fifteen people in the building, they would get together and have a TJIF meeting, and they'd get together, and you know over the course of an hour, they would sort of celebrate the new deals that had come in. So talk about sales success, and then they'd focus on people after that. So the sales success was really important, right? Like the the people part, and, and, and again, the sales piece. I shouldn't undermine that. Like we're an incredibly sales driven organization. So like that was that was the first thing we talked about. Let's to be clear. But then right after that, and for the majority of the meeting, there were a couple of really key activities that were never missed. And this, this perpetuates today. So one is anybody that was new at the company would get up and introduce themselves. And as they did, they would share you know, where they're from, you know, what team they're joining, et cetera. But also they would share their first concert. And as, you know, as they did that, it was interesting because it would really sort of, when you share your first concert, it actually elicits quite an, an emotional reaction from those around you, right? It's like either people, that was their first concert too. And like they're somehow your soulmates with that person automatically <laughs> for some reason. Or, oh my gosh, you did not seem to me like a Dr. Dre or Snoop Dogg kind of person. Like that's totally a mind blower. Like there's just all these things that are really interesting about the concert. So that was an important sort of thing that perpetuated. And then if, if the person said, I've actually never been to a concert, Ryan would say, hey, choose, you know, choose your dream concert. We're sending you your first concert, right? Kind of a thing. So it's kind of this great you know, celebration moment for new employees. Then we would do this thing called um, whoops. And whoops was a chance to celebrate people and mistakes at Qualtrics, and the cost of going fast, which was again, what we were trying to do. Basically each week, someone would raise their hand, a few people, and they would share a story about messing up that week, right? It was like, hey, I, um," you know, the crazy stories, right? Like I took a support (laughs) call on my phone, because it was a crisis situation, but I was in the bathroom. And so I was talking to the client while I was using the bathroom. And and there was this moment where they could tell I was in the bathroom and it was super awkward, right? Like Just everything that you could think of, someone would surface and tell the story. And then there was this award. And whoever had the biggest, funniest voted upon, everyone voted at the end, mistake. We celebrated that and they got this award they carried with them for the week until the next Friday when someone else would volunteer. And it just sort of made it okay for people to go fast, to take risks, to fail, you know, and there was always a learning moment, you know, like the founders would step up and our CEO, our co-founder, Jared, would, would take the mic and just sort of comment around that mistake for just a second, just to make sure it brought context to why either we should never do that again, or, hey, that's the cost of, you know, going fast. So those are kind of things. So today, even now, every, it's moved to Thursday to handle our international offices. Every Thursday, we have a TGIT meeting now, where it's all hands globally, everybody dials in, and we do the same things. And so we've tried really hard in a lot of ways to sort of make sure those components. Are, we we do stay very internally focused on making sure that we have the best benefits in the world, that our people are more engaged in any other business, that you know, regretted attrition is you know zero where possible. Like that's a massive focus. And what, what I think Ryan's done is he's built a family. At this point, it's a two thousand person family, which you know we intend to scale that to much greater than that, um, and we're on track to do it.
0: It's a plan post you know close with. SAP to operate autonomously, similar to a Google and Yahoo, or is it to operate under the umbrella?
1: It's this very cool combination of both. And I'll tell you why. So on the one hand, so right now, SAP, I mean, SAP is incredible. And like what they've been able to do almost, you know, triple their market cap under Bill McDermott. Like he's in a phenomenal leader. Like he's amazing. And their most recent sort of like market strategy has been to sort of build up the intelligent enterprise because with smarter businesses, you can improve the world. And there's a lot of reasons that that's made a ton of sense. And it's been great for them. But what they recognized is that the future of the business software industry is experience management, right? It's not just producing more widgets faster with, you know, less overhead and, you know, reduced supply chain sort of friction, but instead it's about how do you actually manage the experience end to end? Not only, so for example, okay, let's say you buy a new pair of Under Armour shoes. They're new hover shoes that are amazing. And you put them on, you're like, wow, I, I, I ordered a size nine, but these fit a little bit different than most of my size nine shoes. Well, now that information, that sort of that experience data that you have can not only get back to customer service reps who can you know, maybe give you a new pair of shoes or try treading them out. Like, yeah, great. That's, that's important. And that's, a, that's, a, that's an incredibly important part of customer success. But not only that, now you can get it back into the production line to the machines, the people, the processes that made that shoe. And all of a sudden, you've got end-to-end experience management. That's something that nobody else can offer. And so the Intelligent Enterprise will remain. But instead of SAP as the Intelligent Enterprise and Qualtrics Experience Management, it'll be SAP Experience Management. And one of the products you can buy is Qualtrics, right? Because that's how they deliver experience management is you need the X data, which is what we deliver, and you need O data, which is what they're you know, best in the world at. You know, 76% of all the world's transactions. That's amazing. So what's cool about this is, yes, you know, the last thing they want to do is interview with Qualtrics, who are one of their fastest growing cloud assets. Like, they're just like, hey, call us if you need anything. Like, literally, if you need anything, call us. Otherwise, you guys got this. Go. Go for it, right? And they understand the category and like, what we're doing is pretty special. At the same time, they're elevating their messaging up to, we are experience management. And so it's this really cool thing where we're at the table and all these decisions talking about what the future of the company is, mostly what the future of experience management is and how we do that together.
0: You know, one of the things that you brought up is in the very, very early days, you know, starting in B school, right? That I think you guys actually have or had a, oh um, uh, gosh, it's been a long time since I've been to so since I've gotten my MBA, but there's like this self-reported product where you do a, you know, you have a bunch of people survey about who you are and, you know, and then it's a self-awareness assessment that has a name and I don't know why I can't think of it, it's, but anyway, the 360 performances, 360 review. Thank yeah. you. So the 360, and do you guys still have that product? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. So was that the first product or was there a B2B product that was, was, was that the original strategy?
1: You mean outside of our um, research offering for academics? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. So so let me. I'll give you a quick overview of the history of Qualtrics.
0: And, and and sorry, really quick. And this is the reason why I'm interested in it is, it felt to me as an outsider like there was a pivot that took place inside of Qualtrics that was super important, where there was, and this is just, again, this is an outsider view where there was, you know, an intention to go to the, to the market at large, and then sort of a refocus on the B schools. And then the B schools, you know, eventually empowering organizations and already being the tool of choice because of the, you know, experience, it created this massive sort of distance or benefit for Qualtrics as the platform of choice.
1: You know, it's funny because I'd, I would love to tell you, Hey, look, we got in the basement one day and made this di- diabolical <laughs> scheme to go take over the world. And here are all the strategic steps we were going to take. But the reality is, and it's why people keep talking about this so much, all the good things happened to Qualtrics because we were incredibly focused on the customer. And I know that sounds so cliche and that's what everybody says, but let me just give you evidence of what that means and how that, that pivot you felt that was so smart and sort of put Qualtrics into the next stratosphere was absolutely just working and listening to the customers, and then being smart on top of that, right? Because sometimes customers ask for strange things, especially academics. I mean, academics are, in a lot of ways, the worst possible customers, right? Like, they, they want really fringe use case sort of features that no one will ever use ever again, but if they need it for this very specific research thing they're doing. And then they, they have so much time on their hands, they're in the product all day long, just pounding the product, right? So it's like, they're just, they're really demanding customers. But what that did is it forced us to innovate and to build something incredibly robust. it forces us to build an enterprise offering, although we didn't know it at the time, right? So think about academics. Some of the data they're collecting is so sensitive, the university will be sued if any of the information gets out, right? Medical records, you know, gender preferences, like all kinds of stuff, right? So it has to be incredibly secure. So out of the gates, we had to build a platform where data security was front and center. Then there's probably not a more collaborative group of people on the planet than academics. Right? like Not only do they want to collaborate with other professors, but hey, my mentor is at Princeton. I need to collaborate the same thing with this friend at Princeton. And so collaboration became an important part of the tool out of the gate. So all of a sudden, you've got an enterprise platform that's secure and with massive collaboration capabilities. You know that, that was absolutely serving that customer, but we didn't realize at the time we we're building a lights out enterprise commercial offering. And so with the 360 in particular, what's cool about that is Universities who are a primary customer said, Hey, business schools in particular, we're having trouble proving that people, there's economic benefit to having an MBA. So, one of the things we want to do is we want to show people how big of a transformation they have as they go through the process. And so that's where they said, Hey, we could use Qualtrics and just survey their friends and find out how they feel about their skills. And then afterwards, Survey them again a year after school and be like, hey, did, did did you see any changes? Right, like what happened? And they said, but you know what'd be really cool is, God'd be better if you could do you know one assessment, but instead of like one survey that one person responds and then another one, another one, another one, another another one, what if it was one survey and multiple people or what they call multi-rater feedback could exist? So we said, oh, that's a cool technology problem we could probably fix out. Let's go do that. So we built the 360 to go address this B school problem of, hey, we need to show the world that people come to our program and leave different, better, improved, more skilled, more ready for the workforce. And that's what the 360, that's how it started. So we started, it started at Stanford. I love that. So So then,
0: so I just, I have to, I have to interject really quick since you're on this, since you're on the, um, on the B school, I have this. So I have competed over the years with you guys, um, vigorously and I've won and I've lost. And one of my all time biggest losses is the is actually in my hometown fresno state so fresno state has a qualtrics license um you know i built a survey platform that's 200 employees here locally and even created a school in the cs department or a class in the cs department which qualified uh programmers on the to be on my platform and yet i could not unseat qualtrics even though i'm friends with the president of the university so it was it's interesting how you know, once you were dug in, you know, to that ecosystem, there just, it felt like it was really hard, if not impossible to unseat you.
1: Oh, well, we love, I mean, we love that strategy. And, and I wish I could say it was just because, you know, we have a great sales team, which we do, but early on the strategy was very clearly focused on the academic market. And so that meant that we tried relentlessly to serve that customer. So when they said, Hey, we want you to build a question type that flies in from the last, watches their eyes as they watch a video that scrolls from top to bottom, and then sees if their ears move while they're watching. Like we would go build that, and we'd say, you know what? We're here. Like this is your, your. Like we're going to do this for you. We're going to go do it, even if we knew no one was going to ever do that again. And what they liked about that was they built this trust with us, where they said, even if I needed that one capability, the cool thing is, uh, you know, um, thirty days later. It was now standard in the product for everyone and so we just productized all the stuff they were asking for instead of making it one-off custom we just said let's just put all this capability in the platform and make it scalable to everybody because i bet there's other people like professor so-and-so who want to see if their ears move when they're smiling watching video from top to bottom as their eye scroll or whatever
0: hmm, love it that it feels it felt to me a lot that one of the things that you guys did that again being very Centric to your experience data, you know, applying that those same principles to your customers, and then you know, letting that guide the roadmap, which ultimately created this suite of productization of research. That you know, once it's baked into the the operations, it's really powerful to inform and create change inside of your inside your customers to create better you know, benefit to their customers.
1: No, that's right. That's right. Absolutely.
0: So if you were a, you know, we have a lot of entrepreneurs. I've got really three different types of listeners to the shows, right? You've got insight professionals. You've got people that are looking to get careers inside of the market research space or insights space. Um, And then there's this group that's these entrepreneurs. When you think about and talk with this aspiring group of professionals that are starting their own businesses, and trying to fill needs in the marketplace. What, is that? what are a couple of recommendations that you would give them? Keys to success.
1: Yeah, for, for recognizing needs in the marketplace. You know what's interesting is like, you know, I'm pretty passionate about this. I don't know if this is the answer you're looking for, but I'll just go with my instincts here. You know, I have a bunch of classmates who are incredible people. But they 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 fell into the classic like business school trap, especially at Stanford, where like every it feels like everyone around you has started a you know billion dollar tech company, right? Like your classmates doing a billion dollar tech company on the side, apparently. Like it just feels like that all the time. And so there's this process of like market assessment. Right? It's like, okay, well, let me go discover a market need. Let me go build out a let me understand the TAM, let me go find a technical co-founder, we'll fit that specific need. And like that, that's sort of this idea that sort of exists out there. And there's books that talk about this, et cetera. And the reality is like, I just don't think that works. Like anybody I know that's gone down that route, like maybe they've had a base hit, but most of them just folded up shop. And what's interesting about it is really what's led to sort of incredible outcomes, you know, happiness for the entrepreneur and success, you know, financially or technology wise, or whatever that success metric is, is for them has been around that founder passion people talk about. So it's where um, not only do they have an idea, but it's something they personally care so deeply about that if it comes time to mortgage the house, they're like, I'm, of course I'm going to mortgage the house. Like, if I don't do this, what am I going to do? Like, I was born to do this. Without that, I just don't think it works. Like, it gets so hard and so painful. Even by the time I joined Qualtrics, right? right? This, is, you know, this is 2012. You know, six years ago, they were well on their way, but like, it was hard. And if you don't have that conviction to like stay the course, it is so easy to get blown around, and, and you wind up with a you know some you know quasi successful exit along the way. And so I'll give you a, a quick anecdote that's been really powerful for me, and that's sort of I've seen this happen over and over again. So Andy Ratcliffe, one of the founders of Benchmark Capital, amazing entrepreneur, amazing leader, runs you know started Wealthfront. He's just incredible. One of the smartest people I've ever met. He's been a great mentor. He's a great person. As I think about you know, he talked early on about the investment criteria that Benchmark would make. And they'd get their board together and they'd vote on them. And, and they looked at it, and it, it was, this is this oversimplification, but they'd put everybody in a two-by-two two matrix, right? And on one side of the matrix, you'd have whether the, whether the entrepreneur was right or they were wrong, which, again, is hard to know as an, as an investor. But, like, let's just put it over there, right or wrong. You know, was their idea right or wrong? And then at the top across, you know, on the, on the other axis, you'd say, is the entrepreneur's idea in consensus with the majority or non-consensus. Okay. So think about that. You've got whether they're right or wrong in consensus or non-consensus. And what's interesting is they didn't want to, of course, invest in any entrepreneurs that were right and in consensus, right? So it's like, hey, we want to um, create a social network that does X, Y, and Z. It's like, okay, yeah, everybody agrees that that's a good idea. In fact, there's a hundred people doing it. It's going to be a commoditized market. There's no competitive advantage. We don't want to be in that business. It's going to be a base hit, and as you know, venture capitalists are looking for not base hits; they're looking for dragon type returns. So it doesn't work for them, right? Even if the entrepreneur they think is right, and everyone agrees they're right, they don't do it. Then you go down to what the entrepreneur is right, or sorry, in consensus, and they're actually wrong. So there's a great example like Groceries.com. So it's like everyone's like, yes, why would I go to the store to buy groceries when I can order them online? Well, it turns out you know that was in 2000. They poured 800 million dollars into that business, and it didn't work because for whatever reason. It's a great idea, but it turns out people just still like going to their grocery store and putting cans of soup in their cart, right? Like, there's a thing. And then we're starting to see a little bit more of the online thing, but like it just right. everyone thought they were right, but the entrepreneur actually was wrong, right? You hate to be in that category, but who can blame you because everyone thought you were right, right? So, you know, no big deal. Then there's these other two really dangerous categories, right? One is you're not in consensus and you're wrong. So everyone told you you were wrong, and you are wrong. So now you're just the classic line. You're an idiot, basically. And everyone tells you that. And it's like, that's such a terrifying place to wind up that most people won't do it. Now, the interesting thing is, the last box is you're a non-consensus, and you were right. So everyone told you you were wrong, but you're right. That's where the magic happens. That's where you get out in front of the crowd. And that, by the way, is exactly what happened with experience management. We went out with experience management. And before we did, by the way, everyone, and I mean everyone, was going, I don't get it. You guys are a great survey platform. Why don't you just stick with what you know? That makes sense. People understand that. Experience management. Are you a wedding company? Are you a river rafting tour operator? What do you mean experience management? Right? Like, it took work, but we were so convinced. We were so convinced, even though everyone said it was wrong, we paid the price, we stayed the course, and it, we wound up in a really special place. Um, and I think everybody in this last you know, acquisition, it, it painted a picture of how special it really was. What's cool and what's counterintuitive about this is Andy tells this story about how they would have the board vote at benchmark. And if the entire you know, board agreed that it was an amazing investment, that they should do it, they walked away. Because they knew that they were in that territory of the box that was the entrepreneur was probably right. And everybody knew it. That wasn't the kind of business they want to invest in. Which is so counterintuitive, right? So counterintuitive. So it's funny because now I have friends come to me and they'll be like, and it's funny, this is pretty common, right? There's either the entrepreneurs who don't want to tell anybody because they think people are going to steal their idea, or there's the entrepreneur that's a little like, they don't have the confidence they need. So they're out there like, hey, I kind ca- of have this idea. What do you think? And they're looking for people to say, that's amazing. That's genius. You should totally do that. When the reality is, in a lot of ways, you should be doing the opposite, right? When, when you go, hey, I've got this idea. What do you think? People are like, that's really stupid. I don't get it. The answer should be like, so you're saying there's a chance, all right? Like, okay, like it's it's that pushback that's uncomfortable that says, okay, this is something I care about so deeply, the rest of the world doesn't quite get it yet, but they will, right? If that's what you have inside, that's a good thing.
0: Exactly. It's this capacity to be able to trump the fear of failure and the fear of how the market, your parents, whatever might view you, and just be dogmatic about your going to be successful because this is what the market needs but you know the fear part is that you move to your you know using your quadrant example you do move into that position of yeah everybody said it was a bad idea and oh yeah (laughs) it turns out it was but you know thinking about your transition into experience management I think that view is that you described is and I appreciate that that, that color commentary is exactly correct, right? I mean, I remember when you guys did the announcements, the four quadrants, the website changed. I looked at that and I said, "Holy moly, that is a completely different company. How are comp-, and this is where my brain went how are corporations going to pay for it?" In other words, it's uncharted territory. There isn't a budget line item, right that's been set aside for this, this experience management or experience data. And it seems like the corporations adapted.
1: Yeah. So, you know, it was interesting. Again, it wasn't like, hey, we blindsided corporations with this announcement, right? Like this was something, again, experience management was something that we were being pulled along by our clients in a lot of ways, right? So we try to be as customer-centric as possible. And what we realized is even though we'd, we'd set out a long time ago to build you know, the number one online market research platform, like that's what they went to go do. And by the time we like checked in, like this is the time I'm joining the company. When We checked in and actually had you know, usage data and you know, we were combining our O data from the platform with X data from what people said they were trying to do and wanted to do with what they were actually naming, doing in surveys. What we found is that market research had actually slipped to the third most common use case. The number one use case was customer experience, customer satisfaction. The number two was employee experience. And then number three was market research, but primarily a combination of product work and brand work, and so it emerged and it was clear to us, but you know putting a, a container around it, building a category that highlighted what that was, that felt super risky. So what we ended up doing was you know right before that we started to build out very specific technology stacks that lined up against the unique use cases that our customers needed. so we were delivering the needs you know delivering products for our customers' needs, like unquestionably, how we talked about it and what we called it. That was really hard and that was really risky. And I'll tell you what, here's what people would say. People would say, wait a minute. So, you're going to have competitors out there who have a single buyer, a single focus, a single message, and just as much marketing money as you'd have. And you're going to go out there and talk about this thing called experience management that probably only resonates with the CEO. And now you've got four different buyers that you're supposed to be selling to. Like, it's going to be such a cluster. It's going to be so hard. It's not going to work. Like, that's the kind of stuff people were coming back with. And we had to say, it's the right thing to do. You don't get it. We're making the bet. Let's go. And that was really hard. It was it was a you know classic Ryan Smith move. It was a bet to business move. Once we made the decision, he went he went top to bottom through the entire company and said, This is our future. This is what we're doing. There was never like a, hey, we're gonna go test the waters, we're gonna I'm gonna go socialize this with the teams. It was like, this is what we were doing, let's go.
0: That's such a great story. It's so inspirational, honestly, as an entrepreneur being willing to make those choices. And of course it's always nice when it when you're right. I just there's so much of that, you know, the psychology part of it that it's just not understood unless you're part of that experience. Because you don't know, you know, I mean, this Steve Jobs, the dots connect when you look backwards. But as you're going through it, you don't know that the B school grads are gonna wind up using you as a platform of choice in five years, right? I mean, you just don't know. It's great if it happens, but you just don't know. And being so dedicated towards creating and realizing that vision is, I believe, to your point, the reason that there are companies that are successful and as it wavers, why they're not.
1: If I was to give one tidbit of advice to those aspiring entrepreneurs out there, and it's not even advice that I can say, Hey, I've internalized this and I've exemplified this. It's just that I've I've experienced it and watched it at Qualtrics. So that's why I feel like you know, I, it feels somewhat authentic to share it. And that is that the founders at Qualtrics, Ryan and Jared, have always unquestionably played the long game. They've always played the long game. And you know, what's interesting about that is if you think back to like the student thing. Like, look, you did know, Microsoft, I think someone we interviewed someone from Microsoft the other day and they, they shared that. There's 34 million free licenses available to college students right now for office and something like 2% of them are being used. So it's like just getting into academics and for example, playing the academic game and saying, Hey, we're going to go and serve this audience. And yes, in the long run, all the students are going to adopt it and drag it with them out to the workplace. Like that is not, that's not a slam dunk bet. But if you're playing the long game, it's the right decision, right? And so when you're playing the long game, it doesn't make sense to you know, give away the entire company up front for ego, right? To be like, we were the fastest fundraising company or the, the most valuable company in Utah. And like, There's a bunch of reasons why it would have made sense to go raise it at higher amounts, right? But instead of doing that, they remained in control of the company because they wanted to build a legendary business that would be generational. And I've just seen this in every single decision they've made. They've stopped and said, Fast forward 15 years, what do we want it to look like? Okay, let's take that into consideration for the decision today. And that's just it's just part of the decision making. Like they don't make decisions without pausing and saying, what does it look like in 15 years? Now that's the same thing with benefits, that's the same thing with technology. Like as we think about feature investments, like that's the process we go through. And I just I see so many entrepreneurs, you know, doing what matters now and not staying the course. And I think that comes from what we talked about earlier. If you don't have deep founder conviction, you're like, look, I'm going to do something that's going to change the world or change an industry or change something. Um, If you're not that passionate about it, you're probably just going to do whatever it takes to survive now because you don't really know what the end game is because you're not that passionate about it and it just doesn't work. Only go in on something you're passionate about and then play the long game.
0: Yeah, it's a lot like reading or writing rather a fiction and then reverse engineering that outcome, right? So in, in every way you are... Creating the world around you every single day. That's exactly right. And to your point, it's probably one of the hardest things I think that there is to do successfully because every day is a blank slate, and every day there is this. No matter what, when you're creating from nothing, there is always headwinds, and it just takes a tremendous amount of fortitude.
1: Here's my authentic version of that, and it's it's maybe um, a less business relevant context example, but nevertheless important. I think people actually do this intuitively in their personal lives, and then forget to do it in business, right? So like. When I met my wife, she's one of the most incredible people to date that I've still ever met. Like she's, she's bright, she's beautiful, she's kind, she's, she's, she's just amazing on every level. And when I met her, I was like, there's no way she'll date me. Zero chance that she will ever date me. <laughs> and so what I did is I said, well, who do I think she's going to end up marrying? Like who's the person that she's going to want to be partnered with for life? Like what does that person probably do? What do they probably say? What, do they, what kind of things do they invest time in? And I I just sort of watched that story unfold. And I said, okay, well, there are some parts of that that I am today. And there's some parts that I'm not there yet. And so I started to go and do those things and become that person because I knew that was the long game. I knew that was the end state. And, you know, it was this two year, you know, which is not that long in the grand scheme of things, but this two year dating journey to sort of get to where I knew, you know, we needed to be in the end, right? So fast forward 10 years, what does this life look like? How do you become that person? What decisions do I going to make today to make sure that those are true 10 years from now? So, you know, I think people do that intuitive in their lives and then we forget in business. We're like, oh, let's just go find a market need and build something and we'll do whatever it takes to raise money today.
0: So do you have children?
1: I do, four kids. Four
0: kids. So yeah, congratulations. I've have, I have five. So um, oh, right. but you're still younger than me, so you've got a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> We're done. Or is, is the
1: new uh, six. We're done. We're done.
0: It, <laughs> I imagine you travel a fair amount. How do you, how do you balance that with the heavy responsibilities at, at home? Yeah. Do you have any tips for us seasoned professionals?
1: Yeah. You know, actually road warriors. So a couple of things. things actually
0: feel like, you know, maybe
1: this is one of those things where you're always delusional. Like you always think you've got a better handle on work-life balance than, than you do, than you, than you really do. A couple of things. One, I think it's been really helpful to, I've just acknowledged out of the gates. I'm very open about this, that I don't have great work-life balance. So I like to work. I like my job. I like coming in early. I like staying late. You know, when Ryan comes to me and, you know, our CEO says, hey, you know, it'd be Friday at 4 p.m. And he'd be like, hey, I forgot to tell you, I've got a presentation Monday morning. Can you put it together for me? Right? Like, I love those scenarios, right? It's like, oh yeah, let's just go scramble the jets and get this thing done. So that's something that I have to just acknowledge about me. Instead of being like, oh yeah, I mean, I've got to figure out balance. and whatever, I just sort of acknowledge first and foremost, but I, I like that. I do. So now the question is, okay, well how do I put checks and balances in place to make sure that I have a, but I also love my family. Like there's nothing more important in my whole world than that. So I had to figure that out. So a couple of things. One, a friend gave me this advice a long time ago and it's been it's been amazing. One is I think about at the beginning of every week. So Sunday nights my wife and I spend a bunch of we, weekends are mostly sacred for, sacred for me. Like mostly they get blown up all the time, but for the most part, like that's when I'm home, I try to unplug, etc. I'll talk about that in a second. But on Sunday evenings we sit down and we say, okay, well What do I need to do to make sure I stay connected with my kids this week and with my wife? And so, you know, a lot of ways, if you just do a evaluation at the end of the week, it's really easy to feel like you failed. You're like, you know, for example, I traveled in December, I traveled 20 out of the 25 working days in December. And so that sucks, right? Because like, you know, with with the holidays and everything, like that's super hard. So it's easy to look back and be like, oh my gosh, I totally failed as a dad, as, as a husband. Like this was his nightmare. But instead, if you take a proactive approach and you say, "Okay, it's Sunday night. What do I need to do to feel connected to my oldest daughter this week?" And you know, I'll I'll say something like, "You know what? If I could go and she's got dance twice a week. If I could go and, and watch her dance for a full hour, just take her, drop her off, and sit there and just watch her dance, and then take her to you know get an ice cream on the way home. Like that's probably enough this week to just feel like I stayed connected." And what happens is, you know, then I say, "Okay, for my son." It's if I'll just ask him to tell me the names of his dinosaurs one time for five minutes before he goes to bed. He loves dinosaurs. I'm just going to ask him. I'm going to lay down on the floor and I'm going to ask him to tell me the names of his dinosaurs. And we're just going to do that till he falls asleep, you know, a 10 minute process. And I would do that with each of the kiddos. And even if it's a really small thing, sometimes it's a five minute engagement. And I know that sounds maybe a little bit cheap now, but like in the moment, it's actually, it's actually really amazing to just be present with the people that you love and care about, and even if it's just for one or two moments a week. So if I design that at the beginning of the week, at the end of the week, I was like, I did it. I sat down, I played dinosaurs for 15 minutes with my son. That was, that was 15 minutes for the whole week, but I, I did that. And without that, I found myself not doing anything, right? And, like, I just didn't, and then being frustrated at the end of the week, or maybe I did, but I forgot. And like, it just it felt really toxic. And so designing that you know, made, made a big difference.
0: So really quick, I have to interrupt really briefly. The thing that I love about that tip is all too often I hear people say, oh, I'm going to watch less TV or whatever so that I focus more on my family. But you're doing the positive as opposed to the negative. And I think that's a big key here. And that is you're saying, all right, I'm going to do, boom, five minutes or an hour or whatever the specific activity is, which gives you a very specific view of what success looks like as opposed to framed in the negative of I'm going to stop a behavior, Right. And then as a byproduct of that behavior, I'll spend more time with my kids or whatever.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. and it's, it's it's worked really well for me. And it's not perfect every time. And there's some weeks where the commitments are larger than 15 minutes and some weeks they're shorter. Um, but the consistency over time, I, I, I feel incredibly connected to my kids. It's been great. So that's, that's a tip I'd share. And then the other one is on weekends, I've taken a playbook out of Clayton Christensen's, you know, How Will You Measure Your Life book, where he talks about, you know, he reserved Saturdays for teaching his kids how to work. Like that was what he, like, that was his thing. And he's like, I don't work Saturdays. I don't, like, that is the day I teach my kids to work. And so I've really, I've really taken that to heart. And Saturdays, I grew up a little bit that way. So it was, it was somewhat intuitive to me where I'd say, you know what? On Saturday. Like I'm going to get all the, and it's so hard because I, I'm like, i kind of, I'm kind of, kind of a neat freak. So like, I like, you know, pruning the hedges with like scissors, like, you know, just like getting them like bonsais, up perfect. And so when you bring the kids out there and they're just like, you know, the, you know the, they're <laughs> running over the bushes with the lawnmower and like, it's just not a great scenario. Um, I just, I have to remind myself every time, like, no, this is, I'd rather have my kids connected me to me through work ethic and like understanding how to take care of the things that we, you know, that we have than having the perfect manicured yard and a couple of dead spots where you know things happen. So yeah, I hold weekends sort of sacrosanct. I use them to very much a Saturday is a workday. Kids don't play with friends on Saturday, like maybe, maybe in the evening or something, but like it's just the day we're together. And then, you know, like I do the same thing with my wife. Like every, every week we say, hey, what do we wanna do to stay connected? And then one last tip, I love a good hot soak, like a good, a good hot bath. And so most nights, no matter how late it is, if I'm in town, I'll hear the bathtub filling up and my wife knows that I can't resist. And so- <laughs> Sirens um, call. And when you, it's right. And when you're in the bathtub, you're probably not using technology, right? Like it's not, you know, that the risky proposition. <laughs> hope so, not. so you are, it is just like eye to eye bath time with my partner at least twice, but probably three times a week. And when you get in the bath, a hot bath, like you're just, it's, it's, it's like- Intoxicating. You have to stay in there for at least 30 minutes. Like I, I can't get in a hot bath and get out in two minutes. Like I just, so we invest, we talk, we catch up. It's our time to kind of resync and connect. So yeah, fill up a hot bathtub. That's a work miracles for me.
0: My guest today has been Kylan London, CMO of Qualtrics. Kylan, thank you so much for being on the Happy Market Research podcast with me today. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. I'd also like to point out that he accepted this interview by me submitting to the Dreamcast my wish for him to be on here. So again, special thanks to all those who made this. Happen. Additionally, please take the time to rate this podcast on Apple iTunes. It helps other insight professionals like yourself find us. Really appreciate the support of the community. Have a great rest of your day. This episode is brought to you by G3 Translate. The G3 Translate team offers unparalleled expertise in foreign language translations for market researchers and insight professionals across the globe. Not only do they speak hundreds of languages, they are fluent in market research. For more information, please visit them at g3translate.com. That's the letter G, the number three, translate.com.